Stoa is a digital campfire where we cohere in dialogue about what matters most at the knife's edge of what's happening now. All right, welcome to the Stoa. I am Peter Limberg, the steward of the Stoa. And the Stoa is a place for us to cohere and dialogue about what matters most at the knife's edge of this very moment. And today, Jeremy Johnson returns to the Stoa. Um, Jeremy is an editor and publisher of uh, Revlor Press, I think that's how you pronounce it, and Liminal News. Uh, and he's the author of Seeing Through the World, Gene Gepser, and Integral Consciousness. And he's the host of Mutations Podcast. So get a little bit uh, a preface of how this uh, event came about. So I released this piece called the, the artistic piece called The Cancel God on both high existence and rebel wisdom. And uh, the feedback was, you know, some people were like, oh, it's amazing. And people, oh, this is shit. And there's a segment of a uh, population that actually had uh, legitimate and good criticism and uh, mostly around the integral left, I would say. And uh, Jeremy Johnson was one of them. And so he tweeted something out and I invited him to the STOA to present his thoughts to us today. Um, and I, I think it, Jeremy will, will discuss what it is, but it's not just a critique on the, the piece that I did, but a critique on the whole uh, cancel culture critique from the intellectual dark web and Quillette and, and stuff like that. Um, and I don't publish much intellectual content, uh, but when I do and there's good critique on it, uh, I would love for people to come in and uh, provide it. Uh, because the Stoa is, is a place, a public square, where my hope is that we can transcend tribalism and have uh, good faith conversations. Um, so, yeah, that being said, uh, how it's going to work is Jeremy's going to present his thoughts. Um, and if you have any questions, throw them in the chat box. I imagine I will, I will talk to Jeremy for a bit. Uh, and then I'll call on you. You'll unmute yourself, ask your question to Jeremy. Um, if you want me to read your question on your behalf, just indicate that, and then I will read on your behalf because this will be going on YouTube. Um, so that being said, I will allow Jeremy to unmute himself, and I hope you weren't too offended by the intro song, Jeremy, but uh, I'll take you in. No problem, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Thanks for the invitation. I was not offended. Uh, that song's perfectly fine. doesn't need to be canceled. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean... A part of this is just you know a good faith kind of engagement with the video and some of the initial ideas um, you had sent it in a in a kind of a group DM and there was a lot of playful banter back and forth with a number of us who were here just about the using the metaphor of of this this sort of uh, archetypal uh, creepy pasta style uh, internet tulpa or being right. Uh, the cancel god, right, and trying to understand cancel culture as a kind of uh, a theological structure of behavior, um, a kind of um, capture of religious imagination, maybe moving towards Puritanism or uh, mind hijacking. And obviously, you know, I think your own steel manning of the leftist position was actually quite coherent and clear enough that not too much more needs to be said about that specifically. I think, generally speaking, folks on the left who did engage with you probably had similar critiques in terms of um, wondering who this video was for in terms of who it was addressing and how it was framing cancel culture. So yes, I think for people who have criticisms of cancel culture and feel that it is an outspoken phenomenon, that it's a real problem, um, I think they'd see that video and probably be like, okay, 
Uh, for a lot of folks on the left, I think there was a kind of a throwing up of hands and I'm like, there's so much more we could talk about here. But rather than engage with you in that way, I thought it would be fun to take that metaphor of the cancel God and flip it into a kind of Gnostic metaphor, right? And that was part of our initial exchange that the cancel God is really a demiurge, right? Of some kind of deeper, and I wrote this in my, in my article, a kind of uh, chthonic uh, um, neoliberalism, right? That there is a sort of substrata, a sort of negative theology of neoliberalism that this particular social behavior is a part of, right? And if we really want to, borrowing that religious metaphor, in some sense, uh, transcend cancel culture or address in a really substantive way the cultural polemics that are occurring right now, we need to actually go beyond that demiurge, right? Or trace that demiurge into some deeper substratum that is that has produced it, right? So using that metaphor playfully, I took that as an opportunity to go, okay, so we have especially in the intellectual dark web, especially in a lot of circles um, that recently, even in terms of like leftist liberals have been critiquing cancel culture. There's a kind of, um, uh, the onus is on cancel culture, right? The onus is on, as Ken Wilber talks about, mean green meme and it's, it's uh, eccentricities, it's zealotry, it's puritanism, et cetera. It's like really the, the kind of driver of some of this cultural atomization. It's making it very difficult to find some kind of integration process. And my critique is really saying the symptom of mean green meme or cancel culture is part of something deeper. It's a deeper issue that we can look into but it's part of this process of cultural atomization that the left is just as possessed by as everybody else. Now, maybe cancel culture is the expression or the deity or the demiurgic mask of neoliberalism on the left. On the right, we could say it's something else. And in culture in general, I think we've seen a systemic kind of atomization taking place, not being able to build bridges, increasing siloization, fragmentation, et cetera. So why is that, right? That's what I'm more interested in. And that's really um, where I think kind of a leftist critique really needs to come in because of, well, I brought up three things and I'll just kind of go through them in that order. But the first is recognizing and understanding, having a literacy about the media ecological environment that we all interact in from Zoom to Twitter to Facebook, et cetera. How are these social apparatus, right? These social prosthetics because in the age of, of, of the pandemic, they're, they're the primary means of us communicating with one another rather than being in face-to-face. -face. How are these social systems designed, architected, and engineered? Because if we look into a lot of the studies, and I mentioned Douglas Rushkoff, there's a number of other great, uh, great books beyond Team Human and uh, uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus that show and demonstrate that these social media environments incentivize hyperpolarization and siloization. This is a market incentive. It may not even be like a, a kind of a conscious um, a desire to polarize culture, but these are underlying market incentives that drive the social architecture that we're all swimming in. And recently there was, as I mentioned, a great Zach Stein uh, podcast on Emerge with Daniel Thorson where they were talking about this. This is just how explicit this incentivization of 
polarization and fragmentation is online. And Rushkoff goes far enough to say that it's anti-human, right? It doesn't allow the messiness of long-form conversation, the nuance and complexity to kind of smooth out or perhaps co-inhabit difference, right? Just to see the complexity of these questions and situations. It's a very like, well, cancel culture is a great example of this. Let's condemn this person. They are, you know, they're evil incarnate. They need to be shunned and exiled from society or removed from social media, or they mean to lose their job, et cetera. But the, the, other, the other kind of thing goes as well in terms of on the left and the right, we have all of this constant straw manning of one another. So this kind of, and I'm using this word from, from Gene Gepser's work, this sort of perspectival pinning down of the complexity and nuance of the human in these social environments is part of the market incentive for these social environments. They're making a lot of money doing this, right? And selling our data, et cetera. So, so that's the first kind of literacy I think we really need to be able to critique cancel culture, right? Like it's a phenomena in an environment that incentivizes collective mob behavior, um, polarization, hyperfragmentation. The second turning that I think gives us a sort of a deeper material historical analysis and historical literacy is understanding that, okay, digital markets and digital capitalism is part of this longer process that we know on the left and call, you know, it's called neoliberalism, but what does that actually mean? And how does that play into the rise of um, how we situate the, the, the left and the right today as the left is claiming or that we, we claim that the left has won the culture war, right? They are allowing PR firms to get woke. They're, um, I think Alex B in, in one of his recent Rebel Wisdom articles talked about, you know, if Starbucks can have a PR firm about, you know, um, uh, a Black Lives Matter, then we're, we're kind of in trouble here because there's this unholy alliance between, I think he calls it that, an unholy alliance between capitalism and wokeness. What's that about, right? So that's sort of the, the general impression I think people have of the left. Left means wokeness. It's not really talking about um, as, as a as a realistic goal, some kind of structural transformation of society. It's just looking for more um, more equity, more, um, more, uh, more freedom, and then more ability to participate in the society that we already have. So when we look at the history of neoliberalism over the past 35, 40 years, what we see is a systematic uh, failure, admittedly, of the left to retain its power in labor, right? To retain the power to be able to bargain with corporations, to have some kind of um, uh, uh, economic and social sway on how institutions and said economics um, uh, uh, translate into society. And we've seen this since the, uh, the, the, the Thatcher-Reagan era in the 1980s. It really started in the 1970s with the inflation. Um, and we see a kind of pivot of the left from a labor left, which had an intersection of, of, of class and race, to a a move into more of this fighting in the culture war, right? So there's obviously been an impotency in the left in terms of class politics and labor. Um, and a lot of this has been redirected towards culture. And there's been some tremendous gains in that. And I think this is sort of what I mentioned in, in the article as well, is that um, this is not to say that wokeness or fighting in the culture war that is 
that has become increasingly and problematically separated from class struggle is somehow um, a lesser form of the left. I mean, and no, I think, I think the gains have been genuinely positive. And I think the internet and digital culture has enabled us to some degree to make those gains in a way we hadn't been able to before. But now I think, and especially we've seen in the past four to five years, a tremendous awakening of the left and a lot of questions about, well, if we have no class consciousness anymore, if there is no labor consciousness, if that is so eroded, how do we actually gain traction in movements like Black Lives Matter recently, right? So I think we're looking at a, a need to synthesize both, this is again a gross um, uh, simplification of the woke left and the class-oriented left, uh, synthesize these two forces, bring them together. If there's any critique, I think, in terms of wokeness on the internet, right, and a sort of hypervigilant wokeness that people have been, I think, appropriately concerned about, I, I believe this kind of problem would be ameliorated if we began to focus more on actually gaining economic and social, legal, structural power, right? Not just institutional power, not just representation in CEO boards, not just political correctness in corporations and representation, but actual structural, systemic, and economic redistribution. Um, that is the kind of power that really needs to be re reintroduced in the left. And I think they're trying to figure that out, right? So I think those are the two very important layers here that need to be uh, um, developed as a competency. If we're going to critique the left, if we're going to critique cancel culture and wokeness. We have to see what it stems from. We have to see that perhaps some of its over-exaggerations and hypervigilance have been a result of this kind of impotency for actual structural transformation. Um, and then, as I mentioned in that tweet thread too, right, like in terms of the culture wars, it's the left, you know, may have symbolically dominated the conversation, but they haven't actually won the culture war. Like ideologically, economically, we are still functioning and perhaps even more so on the right than we ever have before. So, you know, I, I think we have to really kind of make some important distinctions here about what actually is going on with the culture war, what the historical analysis, the material historical analysis, right, of class politics can inform us about that, uh, that frustration, how that is also doubly right on the other end has fueled a lot of the reactionary politics that we've seen crop up over the past 10 years or so with increasing austerity and increasing loss of labor in the United States, et cetera, or abroad. So there's a lot to go in here, but this is why the left analysis is really needed to be integrated, right? Like let's subsume um, what the left has to say about class and race and the intersectionality of those things and the history of those things before we take down a straw man about, okay, wokeness is the real problem. There's these deeper historical forces that are, um, uh, it, to strongly use the word, producing some of this cultural fragmentation. Neoliberalism, and really like this is again where the class analysis comes in. We, we know that the ideology of our economic system is extractive, it's atomizing, it's segmenting, it's, it's unidirectional, it's one directional in terms of growth, right? 
Um, this process of, of, of globalization, which we have seen sort of hijacked economics over the past 30, 40 years with neoliberalism, is part of the reason why we're seeing this massive cultural breakdown right now. And we might say that's not enough. We might say that there needs to be an integral or a metamodern or a systemic turn and say, no, no, the problem isn't just neoliberalism, it's the whole civilization. We need a game B, et cetera. I think that's fine, but without this material analysis as one of the foundational pillars of thinking and literacy, we're not really gonna be able to do much, right? If we don't have a literacy about um, polarization and incentivized polarization in, uh, through the markets, in digital media, in our social media environments, we, how are we going to combat that, right? If we don't have a historical literacy of neoliberalism and the kind of economic stressors that have fueled both hypervigilant woke uh, uh, cancel culture and uh, reactionary um, ethno, you know, uh, uh, reactionary, you know, Trumper kind of attitudes, then we're not going to be able to really see through some of these processes that need to be ameliorated. And the left is an ally. And I guess that's the thing that I was kind of concluding in those first two sections. The left becomes an ally here if we can take that theory and and wield it, right? Use that analysis appropriately to work towards solutions, to maybe create alternative platforms on social media, to amplify certain experimental economic models and, and et cetera. So this is not to say everyone needs to become leftist. I think it's just to say that leftism in theory and practice has a lot to teach us, right? There's a lot to integrate for folks who are more interested in experimenting with new paradigms and new models. Um, so the deeper, perhaps the kind of the, the, the finer, final layer here, at least in the article, is taking this to the deeper substratum, the deeper chthonic elements, which have more to do with, I think, what we're interested in, in a lot of the consciousness culture, which is consciousness studies, which is phenomenology, which is what, what is the ontology that produces these forces of colonialism and capitalism, or as, as uh, some folks have popularized the phrase, the capitalocene. What is the sense-making orientation that our culture has produced and inhabits that is able to bring that form of economic ideology, material, social policy, et cetera, and enact it, right? And then how can we overcome that in ourselves in that very true kind of subjective sense, that phenomenological sense, to be able to imagine different possibilities in the world, to enable ourselves to think both media ecologically and to see these environmental historical pressures, but not be reductive, which I admit it is a leftist, I think there's a lot of reductionism and anti-spirituality, to see that those um, those insights are equally as important for overcoming capitalism and imagining a post-capitalist future, right? So those are the three kind of literacies. We have, again, the market, social media literacy, neoliberalism as a literacy, just sort of the, uh, the history of that, the forces that have shaped the contemporary day and age, and then the deeper history, the history of consciousness in terms of how sense-making has evolved through cultural evolution to bring us to where we are today. And I would say my final point about that, I have some differences about Wilbur because I think Wilbur in a post-truth world and a lot of his analysis has been um, um, uh, just, just not sufficiently, his theory hasn't been sufficiently used 
to comment on what's going on because he makes the same mistake. He blames it on mean green meme as the leading, the bleeding edge pathology that's causing all of these problems. Um, I will quickly mention that I think a, a more appropriate use of his model would be to situate a lot of what's going on, not in the pathologies of green, but a sort of arrested development. That's for you, for those who aren't familiar with the terminology, green is like progressive, it's leftist, you know. Uh, there's an arrested development at amber or orange or modernistic stage for him. And what we really need to see is the center of gravity moving more into green, the, the, the kind of things that Amber used to do or modernism used to do in terms of economics, etc., that have been left alone for that stage to do need to move their center of gravity into green. Like economics needs to be a green thing. Green thing isn't just peace and love and everybody's got to be equal. Green is let us innovate economic and social systems for better equity and more resilience on the planet, right? So green needs to kind of come of age in that sense, but amber is present preventing that. And I think in many senses, that is why we see I'm sorry, I'm using amber. I think I mean orange. I'm sorry, the colors mix that they, they used to be different, but modernism the modernistic stage is holding everyone hostage. We have the reactionary pre-modern sort of mythical um, entrenchment. And then we have the reactionary hypervigilant green, but in the center is this center of gravity, which takes the longest to change, right? Economics, legal systems, civilizations. This is the, 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 the most coagulated, crystallized, I don't know what better word, exfoliated expression of consciousness. Like this is, this is it becoming a kind of material um, environment for us, right? That's the hardest to overcome. It's the hardest to transform. And I think that is what's arresting everyone else and pathologizing these, these two <laughs> wielding um, mimetic oscillations between uh, mythic and then postmodern or green. Uh, so th that's just, the Wilbur analysis. If we move, again, this is where I'm coming from, into uh, a sort of Gebserian analysis, which looks more at cultural phenomenology, it's not a stage-centered, we still have this deep insight about um, not just neoliberalism, but if we look at the kind of phenomena that most of the left from like Mark Fisher's acid, acid communism um, and capitalist realism to a lot of other great thinkers that's saying, you know, the, the, the capitalism is this atomizing force that arrests, that ultimately arrests the production of the new. Uh, we see the same kind of language that Gebser has as an insight for the perspectival world, for what he calls perspectivalism, which he sees as this deeper, again, historical process of the cultural evolution, really kind of beginning in the Renaissance period, the beginning of modernity, sort of beginning with this Cartesian split, um, this atomization, this ability or capacity to make the cut and to break forth out of that mythical participatory membrane of the unperspectival or the pre-modern world. Um, that's great to be able to do that, to make those measurements, to spatialize time, to explore the three-dimensional world, to develop the ego, the sense of self and, uh, self and other, right? But that mode of consciousness for Gebser has, has already outlived itself. He says we need to move into this integral mode of being in the world, a different ontology and a different phenomenology. But until we do what we're going to see, and I think we see this today, and this is how I'm looping it back to woke 
culture and in the cancel culture, et cetera. What we're seeing today is how digital media um, is for the time being still captured by the perspective of a world. That atomization, like Epster was writing this in 1949. He was saying, you know, um, atomization is increasing. There's going to be basically a war of all against all. Nobody's perspectives will be able to jive with anybody else's perspectives. There's everything is, there's going to be cultural breakdown, right? Cultural atomization. That's the end point. That's sort of the death expression of the perspective of world. And he saw that as sort of the, an ever increasing in, uh, intensification of that in our cultural phenomenology, that it would become increasingly pressing and difficult to cross these bridges. So I think to pause and sort of conclude here, what we really need perhaps is an integral left, a left that understands the criticisms, that in integrates the material analysis that leftist politics and class theory and intersectionality can offer us, but doesn't stop there necessarily. It, it adds and introduces this deeper cultural phenomenology in the, the, the becoming of consciousness to enable us to imagine what Frank, uh, um, Franco uh, Bifo Berardi calls a uh, futurability, right? Imagine the possible. And how do we countervail a culture a neoliberal culture of hyper-atomization and, and fragmentation. Well, Zach Stein says we get offline, we, we meet each other face-to-face. -face. Maybe that's hard right now. But there are other ways we can do this, right? There are other ways, like Byung Chul Han talks about um, um, cultivating the via contemplativa in terms of becoming more present. This is essentially what Gepser suggests as this sort of radical act of becoming truly open to the present and to each other in empathy and the complexity of the present. Now, this allows us to, in some sense, to overcome these social, material, economic, and also um, uh, consciousness-oriented crises that are manifesting right now in both the meaning crisis and the meta-crisis. Um, so I would say like the, an integral left begins there somewhere. It begins with our ability to become more present, um, to not, um, to, to have equanimity towards our allergies if we really feel like the left is, is, is um, we feel kind of reactionary or don't want to touch leftist theory. I think we have to, I think we really have to move into it but do it in a way that is this more equanimous, present, and imminent attitude. Um, and when we do that, I think, you know, at least individually, we've overcome uh, a culture of atomization, if not culturally, right? I think um, it's then we begin to cohere what the integral world looks like or what integrative thinking or what... Um, what the world after hyper-fragmentation atomization looks like. If we can begin to live that in the present, that is really our only shot. That is really our only chance. Um, so that's sort of my, my, whole, my whole spiel, right? Those three main points. Um, and we can, we can open it up here and we can, we can start dancing. Very cool. Yeah, that, that was awesome. Um, so if you have any questions for Jeremy, uh, put them in the chat now. Just indicate, have the question in front of your question so I can like, you know, determine if it's a question or a statement. Um, so I'll, I'll start off with the one question. Um, I'll actually kind of talk about the, the cancel culture piece a little bit that kind of inspired this, this talk and then I'll, uh, that will lead into a question. Um, so somebody earlier in the chat said, what is the, uh, like a, a right version or conservative version of cancel culture? 
And so just to give you how the sausage was made of that cancel God piece. Well, for first, people who haven't read it, it was a short, like a thousand word kind of essay on high existence. Then Rebel Wisdom did a, a short video on it. And the idea there is that through the culture of cancellation, and I use that word uh, specifically when I'll, I'll say that in a moment, why? Uh, a God emerged, a nihilistic God emerged that wants to make everyone afraid to actually talk. And then if everyone's afraid uh, to talk, then everyone's at jeopardy, uh, we're at risk of the meta crisis and going extinct as a species. That's the general idea. Um, so how the sausage was made there, uh, originally I, I, I was making the argument that every mimetic tribe, whether from left or right, has their own version of uh, cancel culture. There's an in-group and an out-group. And through that, that, that God emerged. But the, the first essay, people didn't like it. as too nuanced and it's not mythological. There's a second essay, they didn't like it. Third essay, then through all that, then I, you know, getting exhausted, just wanting to get out there, cut a lot of stuff. So propositionally, yeah, it looked like the finger was being pointed at uh, sort of the, the woke social justice mean green mean, uh, which was not my original intention, but it is something that uh, I did write. And then the, the, the Rebel Wisdom piece was like three over three hours of filming, cut down to five minutes, so a lot of nuance was cut. So. I understand how it did read like that. And, and as Jeremy said in the newsletter, I, I said, yeah, this is ultimately was, didn't serve as this kind of superordinate meme that I was ho hoping for. It was just going to get collapsed into culture war argument. And this was the case. So a guy like Mike Cernovich retweeted it and a bunch of like mega goons retweeting this. I'm like, oh God. Um, so I did uh, admit, confess to that. Um, so, but that being said, and you said, I steel man the leftist approach. I think I, I agreed with it. I didn't just steel man, I agreed with it uh, in, in the newsletter. So my first question to you, uh, this, this talk was called transcending the cancel culture critique. And uh, you know, when people hear transcending or at least the Wilbur it's like transcending conclude, let's include the certain, the good of, of what we're criticizing or we're talking about, I should say. Um, and I imagine people who are making these sort of critiques against cancel culture, they just, oh, this guy's just critiquing cancel culture. He's not, he's not transcending it. Um, could you steel man the, the cancel culture critique? Uh, and maybe uh, in, what's, what's there of value that can be included before we retranscend it? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, so I think for me, the best I can steel man it is, is that obviously like obviously right that twitter dogpiling and you know attacking people on the as a sort of collective mob for a particular kind of behavior definitely creates an environment where where there is no possibility and this is something that you know my my friend uh, recently passed michael brooks talked about there is no room for redemption in a culture that really is is, is hyper vigilantly looking for somebody to make a mistake and to take them down and of course the argument against that is always well the people that are being canceled are rich celebrities and they don't need our help and they don't need a job etc i don't really think that's necessarily the case i think it's sort of um it's just whoever right there there's no particular target i think celebrities have are maybe an easier target um, but I, I don't think that is conducive to a healthy environment um, now I will I will suggest that there's some good arguments coming from the left that defend this behavior and say well okay there's some collateral in that but generally speaking people who never had a voice or any kind of social um, social clout or social empowerment before finally do right and they finally have some kind of amplification that the media certainly is not giving them. The media certainly, you know, journalism certainly hasn't up until very recently um, sort of turned towards uh, a, more, a more receptive 
um, uh, especially, well, this has been critiqued with the New York Times, et cetera. But um, my response to that would be, you know, that that is a good point, but what is the ultimate end point of this? Is it to merely be represented well in a deeply pathological neoliberal system in terms of, you know, being on a corporate board and represented well, et cetera, or having kind of a PR firm um, that goes around in capitalism, teaching people to be much more equitable in their social behavior, policing that. Like, obviously that's not all we want. We want a, a society that is fundamentally transformed. Um, so I think, I think there are, the, the results of cancel culture as a whole creates an environment that is fundamentally unredemptive, right? And the, the capacity to make mistakes and be human, right, is, is not possible in a culture that is predominantly, you know, looking to cancel people, cancel them out forever, right? So I, I would like to see, and that, that would be a, a, an attempt to steel man the critique against cancel culture is that like, yeah, the, the kind of consciousness that produces is, is ultimately, um, is ultimately anti-human, because to be human is to be deeply flawed, to make mistakes and to hopefully at some point come around with empathy. And if they don't, that's another case, right? Like I think there are some situations where maybe somebody should be shamed out of public office for, for some really horrendous kind of commentary or something along those lines. Um, but it's a slippery slope to go down that route. And I know there's the, there's the, the, the liberal critique uh, which is the other kind of steel man. A lot of people say like, well, you know, freedom of uh, freedom of the press should be protected here. Stupid, stupid, idiotic commentary should be publicly engaged with and shamed and embarrassed, right? That's another way of kind of taking and flipping the, the cancel culture on its head and say like, no, 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 let people say it, but, you know, laugh at them, you know? And I think Michael Brooks was quite good at doing that actually about um, a lot of folks on, on the right that he engaged with, a lot of uh, celebrities. Um, so I guess that would be my response, right? Like it doesn't produce a culture that is ultimately able to hold human flaws in complexity. And therefore, what is its real what is it really doing? You know, is it, then it just sort of becomes this, an, another anti-human force in a world where we really need a much more regenerative and redemptive and empathic approach. Uh, empathy and compassion can be ruthless sometimes, but I don't think mob mentalities on Twitter, again, are a really stemming from the left. They're a phenomenon that the left has taken on as part of neoliberalism. And B, you know, mobbing people, there's just, how can we really defend that ultimately, right? So I, I would say those are, those are at least two strong arguments against really endorsing this phenomenon wholesale or whole cloth. Um, um, but, but the response isn't to fight it and say, we shouldn't be doing that to say like, well, we, what are we for, right? We're for a redemptive, regenerative, empathic culture that is fundamentally pro-human and not anti-human. Um, can we achieve that through this sort of collective behavior? You know, and we should ask that question. I don't think we can, right? I think we need a much more um, uh, human-oriented attitude. But yeah, um, and what comes to mind is what you mentioned, Byung Chul Han. He has this excellent book, uh, *In the Swarm*, that talks about uh, that. Um, yeah, so I'll sneak in another question, then we'll go to the question in the chat. 
Um, you talked a little bit about this, the re recuperation aspect um, and the, the white paper I had on Medic Tribes. I had this, this line, um, corporations can be woke, but they can't be anti-capital and how this sort of like neutered the left. And, you know, uh, um, a lot of people talk about this, including the, the late Michael Brooks. Um, so I was wondering how, uh, if I'm not too sophisticated of the, the, the new uh, critiques or conversations around this, but could you talk a little bit about how uh, corporations are, are using ca cancel culture itself to neuter the, the left, and especially kind of the anti-capitalist uh, aspect of it? Yeah, th this is the strongest critique that I think has come from the left about this, which is, you know, uh, using using um, uh, this, this this new, especially this year with um, uh, D'Angelo's book on white fragility has been sort of a contesting point. Matt Taibbi had that piece. Um, um, Adolf Reed had some interesting comments on that piece, and so did Michael Brooks. Um, and part of the issue here is, again, looking at what what is the ultimate aim and function of this if this simply becomes an armature of um, corp the corporate sector to, like McMindfulness, appropriate a thing that was genuinely interested in economic and racial justice, right? It, it could be genuinely transformative um, and appropriate it and sort of declaw it to allow it to fit into the armistice of corporatism and capitalism. And this, we see this everywhere. And this is, again, um, the reason why uh, I, I see this as such an endemic phenomenon is that we can look at the intellectual dark web and see the same thing, the same argument lauded against um, uh, Jordan Peterson's work, right, which is cleaning your own room in a neoliberal world is a great argument. Like, that's, that's fantastic. Yes, like, don't blame it on any kind of social exterior issues. It's only about cleaning up your own interior mess, your own subjectivity, and having a better um, responsible orientation towards life. Don't worry about what the corporations are doing. That's a slippery slope to the um, the, the progressive leftist attitude that just wants everything handed to it and wants a perfect ideal world, right? So that is a great argument too. But this is this is what I mean that this sort of neoliberal structure um, in that sort of uh, uh, <laughs> Cthulhu-like capacity, this sort of tentacular capacity, can take things on the left and the right and appropriate them for itself, right? So we, that is why we really need that literacy to kind of help us navigate this and make their critiques where they're necessary. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, having, having a corporate uh, woke culture going forward where this is just going to be part of, um, you know, uh, the Congress taking, taking a knee, but then actively, legislatively, and economically, you know, not voting for racial justice in terms of, you know, where they're putting their money, where the, where the power is going, right? Where the institutional and structural redistribution isn't happening, right? But if they can symbolically do this, then somehow, you know, we're placated. I think this, that is very dangerous. Um, so if anything, though, I would say like, and I take this as a friendlier because a lot of people on the left are doing a lot of good work with this and they are kind of, they're trying to bring it in, right? Um, they're trying to bring in the anti-capitalists or, or uh, the, the more structural critiques um, within race and identity politics, um, but maybe they're getting co-opted. So I would like, I would like to say like on the left, I want to work with them. You know, I want to be able to say like, well, let's see if we can like Trojan horse this too, right? Like 
maybe, but we need to be bold. We need to keep that class and economic literacy at the forefront of what we're thinking. So when we show up to the Starbucks board about like, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, there are some people who are also very well trained in thinking about, okay, how can we make Starbucks more worker owned? <laughs> you know, like how can we actually transform this economic structure? Um, and use this as a sort of Trojan horse for doing so. And I think that requires, this is the critique back on the left, that requires a lot of synthesis and coalition building. Because again, what we said, 30 or 40 years, the erosion of class politics has left the left in this sort of culture-oriented position, using the weapons and the tools and the, and the media that it has to make inroads, but not with a not with a kind of truly you know power oriented Michael used to call it a Machiavellian spirituality right deep compassion but we have to be ruthless towards systems we have to know them very well and we have to make inroads where we can um, I think that's what's missing and maybe that's what we've seen kind of um, fall back on or, or, or the the issues right now with Black Lives Matter a few months on have been like where does this really go from here. You know, um, are we really going to just let Congress argue about that? Where is our organizing and labor power here? Because that is integral to racial justice and vice versa. Yeah, that's a great response. Um, so uh, we'll go to uh, Lisa. I, I copied and pasted your question uh, below. If you could uh, unmute yourself and read it to uh, Jeremy. Are you still here, Lisa? Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm here. I think I have a new question uh, based on what Jeremy just said. Sorry, I was camera off. Um, what I mean, I had I wanted to build on Ron and J.I.'s point is the left right frame obscuring our ability to encounter the various splinters on the left. The reason I said that Jeremy is and maybe I'd like to pick up on a, the question that comes to mind after what you just said is those wedges, you know, really knowing the system. Um, I think there's something tacit in this conversation about um, to take a certain position toward the, like, admittedly, the, these are effects, these are effects ephemeral effects of, um, you know, cancel culture is just uh, effects in a much bigger system and we don't need to, you know, double down on those and add to the hysteria and the polarization. How would you think about, for example, uh, you made the point that yet, um, I would, you know, I would use the new, the term, the new left. What how would, what would it look like for the new left to, I don't really want to use the word ally because it's um, obscured, but what would it look for the, like today for the new left to find a sliver of common ground with say Adolf Reed? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is an example, I think, of the the problems, like the in-house problems on the left, which is this 
um, perceived divide between class reductionists, right, and then identity politics, they're seen as, as split. Whereas the history, you mentioned the new left, uh, the, the history of the new left since the 1960s, those two questions, those two struggles, class and race, were very integral to each other, very complex, very nuanced approaches where, you know, you know, one theorist may have leaned one way or the other, but that was held together. We really have seen the bifurcation even happen on the left, which is a problem, right? That's, that's why um, to take the kind of consciousness studies orientation or integral approach to this is, okay, this is a real problem that even in, even in a, um, a body of work in literature and a history of different movements and traditions, uh, even there that understand that the commodification of the human being and the atomization of culture is a problem that we need to overcome and they have a literacy about that, even they are undone by those same forces of hyperfragmentation, which is again why I think the left can't supersede this without an integrative approach, without really get, getting into that tertiary or that third form of literacy, which is that, okay, we need to get into the phenomenology of this. We need certain practices that help us get out of hyperpolarization or fixed particular, you know, identity fight infighting online, right? What kind of practices, both social and individual, can help um, um, be a kind of corrosive against atomization, right? That can be integrative, that can cultivate compassion, right? And that's one of the things uh, Michael Brooks and I were talking about uh, in terms of, you know, moving forward uh, on the left after uh, one hell of a year of, of, of uh, political movements, Bernie's campaign seeming like it was about to win here in the United States and then completely um, ru uh, rubber banding the other way. Uh, there's, there were a lot of failures. There were a lot of gains. There was a lot of awakening. There's a lot of problems and there's a lot of divides. So it's like, where do we go from here? And this is more of a, on a question of the left, but I think it also applies to anybody, which is what are the techniques that help us overcome hyperfragmentation and atomization? They can't just be, you know, reading leftist literature. Leftists have been doing that. That hasn't necessarily worked, right? That's only part of the literacy. So I do think we need the via contemplativa. We do need practices of presence and empathy and compassion. And we do need to bring these into these kinds of conversations. Um, because I do think, you know, mindfulness has been sort of, uh, the, depending on how we create and architect the environment for these practices, um, will also kind of mold or frame how they how they come out, right? So if we create mindfulness and we say, oh, this will help you work better and you could become more present and you feel less stressed, those are the outcomes, then like, yeah, you're going to get like a kind of a docile, uh, quasi, quasi calm worker in an environment where nothing's actually changed. But if we inframe these practices and modalities as radical things, like, if you really want to become radically present, then you will have no, no interest in continuing this culture of atomization and your own endeavors, creative, social, and just your mere presence are, or uh, um, not anti, but it, it's for the human and it's for the more than human. I mentioned the post-human is this turn. I don't want to get into too many complex mm -hmm. academic jargon phrases, but what I mean 
for the sake of this conversation is, is the openness to ecological and, and, and complex thought that we need is through this ability to achieve via contempliva, to reclaim temporics, to reclaim social and intersubjective spaces, and to say no to, like, I don't want atomization. I don't want to go on Twitter and fire up my Twitter and take somebody down in these great, these great, like, sharpshooting tweets. Like, we all will make mistakes, but we need to be thinking about this, looping it back to the environmental as well. Like, what are the environments that we're facilitating these conversations? How can they actually be radical and integrative? Um, and again, that doesn't just apply to the left. I think this is a question everybody is, needs to be thinking about in their own domains. I don't know if that directly answered your question, but. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Dylan, you had a question. I pasted it below for you. If you're gonna mute yourself and uh, read it to Jeremy. Uh, yeah. Um, so if cancel culture is in part a function of the, the mediums we're using for public discourse right now, how can we mitigate that? Um, would efforts to improve rhetoric and emotional literacy fit into the spectrum of platforms we're using today? And I'm asking this, I'm, I'm interested in the potential of things like, for example, the STOA and letters.wiki to kind of improve our public discourse as we go forward. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I would say like, we're at this point where like, this is just beginning to be a conversation and it maybe it's, it took the pandemic for us to all be stuck online, seeing the, 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 the potential and the pitfalls of completely replacing, you know, human to human contact with the prosthetic of, of social media that like, oh, there's a lot of limits to this, right? So um, yes, I think any kind of modalities and practices and practice spaces that have different techniques, you mentioned rhetoric and emotional literacy, I think those are great ideas. Um, um, I would love to see just more concrete practices in terms of what you're looking at. Um, Whatever, uh, you know, part, part of like the integral response, I think, is, is getting a sense of coherence about what we're for, not just what we're against, and then developing the techniques that, that move towards that or help achieve that in some way. So those could be two mentioned via contemplativa is another one, you know, this whole idea in my next book, um, Fragments of an Integral Future or Futurism, I'm talking about reclaiming time and presence as a sort of radical openness that I was just mentioning, I think some kind of practice or, or praxis in which we are using theory in a container of other modalities together integrally can be very powerful. And I don't think there will be single answers. I think what would be great to see is if the STOA was a platform, and I think it is, uh, to an extent that is exploring these different modalities and, and seeing what sticks and what's working, right? Because part of what I think this integral turn is, is, is really kind of embracing what Nora Bateson talks about, like mutual learning and sympathesy, right? So this is an open-ended learning and mutual learning process that we're all trying to explore together. So feedback for each other, experimentation, right? Um, and innovation and then sharing, you know, like let other communities pop up that are in-house or in a city um, uh, halfway across the world um, that are also exploring these things because we're, when we're talking about neoliberalism you know, and, and 
late capitalism and the climate crisis. And then we're also talking on the, the sub-layer of that is the perspectival crisis that Gebser talks about and the crisis of consciousness. This is a world crisis that like, we need to be building these meshworks of mutual learning to figure out, to solve together, right? To, to overcome together. So yeah, I, I would just say wholeheartedly, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Um, and it looks like Rebel Wisdom just uh, released a video with John Verveke and myself talking about some of the research uh, that we're doing with this ecology of practice and conversational modalities that we're experimenting here with the STOA. So I put that in the chat. So many good questions. Uh, we're not gonna get to all of them, but maybe we can sneak in one or two more. Uh, Maggie, you just had a really good question. If you can unmute yourself and ask it to Jeremy. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for that excellent um, overview. Um, I really enjoyed the integral left kind of systemic structural critique, which is how I've always understood and learned about the left. And I think, yeah, I appreciate that modernist neoliberal left and how that distinguishes from, I think, how kinds of culture is commonly critiqued. Um, my question is around that kind of integral left aspiration. And I'm hearing you emphasize kind of collective spiritual consciousness, this kind of oneness between different identities and also class and economic equity and structural equity. And I feel like that fundamentally contradicts some of the more traditional conservative, you know, Peterson right-wing values of make your bed, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Um, if you work hard, you can earn a million dollars and that's not morally and ethically incompatible with the system. And so I'm just curious how you can really transcend and include both those things because they feel fundamentally incompatible. And I'm just struggling to reconcile the both and within these two ways of uh, understanding cancel culture and kind of broader critiques of integrating the left and right political debate. Sure, great question. And it's something that comes up um, in a recent conversation with uh, Jason Snyder and Jared Z Janes, and we were talking with them uh, on Growing Down podcast. And it's this question of where, you know, in this, in this sort of thematic of the emergent integral left and how, you know, where are the, where are the coherencies of the integral of the a-perspective world um, seem to be friendlier to leftist positions of reclaiming the common social, uh, social and structural redistribution. Even like in Gepser in 1949, he was talking about um, uh, the restructuration of power, the supersession of, of patriarchy. Um, so he was thinking this is quite, quite a big overturning. And so how do these how do these emergent themes reconcile with more conservative principles of individualism? And I think to some degree, um, the transcendent include, or perhaps the, uh, maybe a better metaphor than transcendent include would be borrowing from Lynn Margulis, Margulis and Donna Haraway's symbiogenesis in which um, there are certain functions that will always exist and need to persist, such as individualism, uh, personal subjectivity, sovereignty, um, autonomy, but they exist within a larger relationship and they exist because of that ecological relationship, right? That the individual arises from the collective and vice versa. So seeing them more as a continuum rather as, as an anti antithesis um, to collectivity or progressive values, I think is helpful, right? Like we don't want to eliminate individuality. We don't want to eliminate personal responsibility. It's recognizing like a healthier left is not and this doesn't always happen, right? Because they're, they're, the back and forth is always going on, but a healthier left is recognizing that individuals are individuals within a rhizomatic 
strata of becoming, right? That, that you are a cell within this larger organism and you have your own domain of individuality and autonomy, but you have it because of everything that has coalesced to allow you to become and have that freedom, right? That agency. So, and this is something that Margulis talks about quite a bit in her, her, her biology or talked about. Um, the autonomy and the agency of a single organism is, is tremendously important for the evolution of, of all the organisms, the evolution of life, what a cell decides to do, what, what a cell decides to do with its own agency, its own subjectivity is just as important as the more reductive, let's say, collective forces of this random genetic mutation, et cetera. There's epigenetic, there's creative, there's agentic elements, right? So I would kind of, I would kind of see the right in, in this regard as sort of the agentic elements of our own subjectivity, our own uniqueness, right? Our ability to kind of go off on our own, do our own thing, that can exist to an extent, right? But obviously, if you cut off the individual from the whole, then you don't have the individual anymore. You lose the, the conditions that create that person standing up with their back straight, right? And that's the, the kind of thing that I, that I heard quite a bit um, and talked about with, with, with Brooks as well during the whole Peterson uh, ex popularity explosion that uh, cleaning your room and making sure you're, you are taken care of um, is really kind of only half the equation. The other half is like the individual is also impressed upon by their society. So if their society is sick, if there's social phenomena that create illness, um, that create certain mental illness, et cetera, depression, these aren't just individual things. They have to, you have to see it as a continuum. So that, I guess that's how I would see it, that they aren't antithetical so much as they have a relationship to the whole and they arise because of the whole, right? And I think maybe this wouldn't be a left position. Um, this would just be a human position to see that Mobius strip of individual collective as like, this is how evolution works. This is how any being is an individual being. This is how any being is a collective being, is this Mobius strip of individuality and collectivity, agency, and then these, you know, these forces that press upon us and mold us a certain way. It's this sort of dynamic dance. Any follow-up, Maggie, or any comments? Um, I mean, I really appreciate that, that view of, of um, yeah, it's a spectrum and it's, it's kind of embedded within more and more emergent holes or collective emergence. Um, I think I'm just still confused about the structural design of that. Like to reconcile the structural, you know, incentivization of economic uh, development and the collective spiritual consciousness oneness, um, especially when we have existing socioeconomic inequality that is so deeply interconnected with race and, you know, all of these identity politics that is material <laughs> and real. Mm -hmm. So I'm just more curious, I think, about the systemic critique, although I think that philosophical conception is really helpful. Sure. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just briefly say, I know we're at the top of the hour, that um, th I think there are like concrete models that we can look at and think about adapting in places like the United States, obviously. Um, but I really like Thomas Bjorkman's whole um, uh, bildung or the, the sort of self-realization process that a collectivist society, you know, a more socialist-oriented society actually endorses and puts into practice. So 
individual realization becomes very important to the well-being of the whole, and they have institutions that put that into place. So when we're talking about things like healthcare, we're talking about social equity and the policies that put that into place. Um, those aren't just for the collective, they also become extremely significant for the health and the resilience of, and the self-actualization, right, spiritual or otherwise of the, of the individual. My, my buddy Ryan Nakade is, is on a kick with this kind of synthesis of uh, uh, what these socialist countries are doing, Bjorkman's work, and maybe some ways to translate that into the kind of rugged individualism of, of American culture. Right, because I think that is a problem. We sort of see ourselves as sort of going alone. Um, and, but I, I would also say that I think part of that, um, part of that rugged individualism, even though it's been sort of an integral component of American culture, the American imaginary, it's also um, been hyper actualized by again the, the 35, 40 years of of, of um, the erosion of class and labor politics. Um, you know, in that documentary I shared in that uh, in my article, that mini doc. Uh, one of the interesting things I learned was, you know, when you joined a, a union for your job, your union took you to school and made you learn about uh, how politics, how economics work, what your role is in the union, what to look out for on the job, etc. So, you know, in terms of like really practical institutional policies, we've lost quite a lot of that social cohesion over the past 40 years, which again is part of that problem of atomization. So yeah, I think, I think there's a lot we need to talk about and obviously we can't get to it all here. And I don't know all of the solutions that are emerging on the, on the left, but this is, this, is the, like, this is the question like, okay, the left is waking up again. What do we do? How do we organize? How do we actually get traction with policy? Um, consciousness raising and organization, right? How do we actually have power? That's the question. Um, and I think that's sort of where you're getting to in terms of like the conservative bent and then also this new kind of revival of, of socialism or leftism or uh, collectivism that is reemerging and integrating again. But I would look to the history of socialism in the United States um, as just great examples of uh, historical precedents. I think um, Harvey Kay has some great writing on that. Um, Richard Wolff has some great writing on uh, understanding socialism and uh, um, another book, um, uh, Democracy at Work. So, yeah. Very cool. Thank you, Maggie. Um, yeah, we're, we're past the top of the hour. Uh, that was an excellent uh, uh, talk, Jeremy, and a Q&A. Um, is there anything you'd like to uh, leave us off with before we close out? Just a, just a thank you, um, an invitation to continue to explore these questions um, on what a, um, you know, again, the left is an ally here in exploring what an integrative, post-atomized, you know, coherent future culture looks like. Um, they have important tools for the toolkit and let's collaborate, let's build it, let's explore. Um, last thing would just be, uh, feel free to join me on Patreon, I'll post it in the chat. Um, I host little Zoom calls and we have a book club uh, every month or so and we have deep dives like this. So, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, my friend. I'd love to have you back and hopefully I don't have to uh, release another ridiculous uh, art piece to get you back. <laughs> um, so a couple uh, announcements. Uh, if you, um, there's two events coming up uh, this evening, the STOA. Um, 
One is uh, the Ultra Mindset with uh, Travis Macy. So think of David Goggins, but like a cool indie version of David Goggins. He's an uh, endurance athlete, ultra marathon runner, and he's going to talk about his eight core principles for, for success and building that kind of mindset. And then um, we have Raph Kelly after that. Uh, Tyson Wagner, are you still here? Yes, you are. I'm here. Can you plug it? Um, yes, Rafe will be here talking about play and meaning making. Rafe leads retreats called Return to the Source, where he gathers groups of people together in nature in a beautiful place and teaches natural movement and participation with the natural world. And he's going to talk to us about play. And uh, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Jeremy. See you guys later. Beautiful. So the Travis event's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time today, and then the Rafe event is at 8 uh, p.m. Eastern time uh, today. Let me just double check that. 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and if you'd like to support the STOA, um, you can go to our Patreon page. Uh, all our events are free, and I'd like to continue to be so, but it'd be great to have your, your support uh, for, for us doing what we're doing here. So, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, everyone, for coming out today.